Why were we put here? I think everyone wants to know, why were we put here? Why are we on Earth? My purpose in life is to, um, to live a normal life, to, to be uh, a citizen, a productive citizen. Intentar pasar por la vida de la manera más desapercibida posible. I don't fully know why I'm here, but I enjoy that. I enjoy knowing that because then that creates endless possibilities for myself. I would like to make a difference, even if it's only in one life, I'd prefer to do more. Because I think the meaning of life, in my opinion, is to find something that you're passionate about and use that passion to make the world around you a better place. Well, good morning, RCC. Uh, my name is Ben Seaman. I serve on staff here as our lead minister. Uh, whether or not you were invited here for our new series, Explore God, or you saw one of our social media posts, we're glad that you're here. We're kicking off a brand new teaching series, asking some of life's biggest questions. I said this before, but uh, as a child, I suffered from curiosity syndrome. I annoyed uh, my mom to no end. I always asked why. I don't think that I'm interested in the answer as much as, um, well, annoying people, but as much as asking the question, uh, why is, it, is there a God? Is there a, a purpose and meaning beyond this existence? Does this existence mean anything? Does it go back on the box? Is there some sort of even afterlife? Well, the reason why I love this series is because it addresses something that we all experience, which is doubt, questions, wondering. Uh, the Old Testament would call it wilderness years, and, and that's okay. Uh, doubt and questions and, and, and working out your faith is part of the process, uh, but depending on your church experience, uh, you were allowed to ask questions or you weren't. Uh, you were probably, some of you uh, had a pastor that honestly didn't know the answer and tried to Jesus juke you and make it a hallmark answer, or you were maybe kind of ch chastised for asking some of life's biggest questions. So whether you're watching online or here or not here, maybe your friends are at home making breakfast, starting coffee, and let's be honest, you're slightly jealous of them. Uh, we all have questions. We all wonder. Uh, Barna Research Group uh, research and studies the local church, and they put out a study um, sort of describing the church in 2018, and they, they found some interesting stats, and I just want to share a few of those with you. Two out of every three Christians admit to experiencing a season of spiritual doubt. I think that's a good thing. Uh, more than a quarter of Christians still find themselves doubting. 38% of Americans are active churchgoers. Active means 1.5 times a month. Point five, maybe mom and dad, it's a drive-by, and they kick the kids out, and they come back. I, I don't know what that point five means, right? 43% uh, of Americans are under church, meaning they've never gone to church. I don't know if this is a, 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 a mind shift for you or not, but there are people in your circles of influence that have literally, and I know people use that word a lot, uh, literally never heard of Jesus. Like, never heard of Jesus, yes, we're in a highly educated part of the country, never heard of Jesus. Or if they have, they have no idea the reference point of Jesus in terms of the story or the narrative of the Bible. And that's, that's okay. 34% of Americans are de-churched, meaning they went to church. It was just meaningless to them. They couldn't say anything because mom and dad would ground them. But man, once the military hit, once college hit, once the, you know, the job market hit, bye, they were gone doing their own thing. 
not because they're heathens or wicked, it's just it wasn't meaningful to them, and why would you go to something that isn't meaningful uh, to you? Seems kind of ridiculous the way our, it's kind of, that's kind of like how our culture thinks. It's ridiculous to go to something that doesn't add value to my life. More than half of all American adults, 58% of us, wish they read the Bible more often. It's interesting uh, and related to having doubt and questions. The ideal form of Bible study is 59% discussion with friends or peers and 32% sermon or lecture. So I'm done. You guys would rather talk to each other? I'm going home, all right? No, but, but both, both are needed. But that, that's why, part of the reason why, we do life groups at RCC, right? If you doubt or if you're wrestling with your faith, great, awesome, join the party. Just don't do it alone. Doubt in community. That's why life groups are so vital to our spiritual formation. And so today we're going to tackle uh, one of six life's biggest questions. And the question we're going to tackle today is, does life have purpose and meaning? Now, a great book of the Bible to go to is Ecclesiastes. I know, I've never heard of that. I got it. It's, it's, it's a boring book, all right? I can say that. It's boring. It's arduous. It doesn't make sense. Kind of like life. And it's also a monologue. Um, I know we've got some preachers in the room. Tell me after service. Please don't call me out because I'll cry and have to blog about it. Uh, it's a monologue in that God is silent throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. I kind of like that because I feel like God is silent in my life when I have questions sometime. And yet, the Bible calls us to still ask those questions, to still wrestle with those questions. Now, the author of Ecclesiastes is King Solomon, and he was born into pr privilege, born into authority, money, wealth, power. He uh, followed the Lord for a season, and like a lot of us, left and kind of went and did our own thing, and later in life came back. Now, he has contributions in three books of the Bible, Song of Solomon, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit, not in full-length, parents. I would have given you a warning. Uh, the book of Proverbs, written kind of in his middle years, and then in his uh, final act of life, uh, Act 4, uh, heading towards the end of his life and his death, he reflects on his life in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so I want to encourage you to turn to your Bibles in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. Uh, the text will also be on the screen. If you did not get in a life group for this series, if you would just go to rccsalem.com and swipe left on your phone till you see uh, Explore God tab, all of the sermon notes are on there and all of the discussion guides are on there as well. So if you weren't in a group and you want to talk about this with some of your high school friends, middle school friends, college friends, coworkers, it's, it's available for you to do that, to circle up with your friends. All right, so after a long life of experiencing almost everything you could experience in his world, this is what King Solomon says about life. Meaningless. There's a Hallmark card. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utter meaningless. Right? What a great card to give a friend as retirement. <laughs> everything is meaningless. What do people gain from their labor at which they toil under the sun? Right? Why do I get up and bust my hump at work and come back for what? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. It doesn't matter. The world uh, is what it was before I got here, while I'm here, and it'll be the same when I leave. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, every, uh, ever returning on its course. All the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full, right? It's all this work, but no return, right? 
to the place the streams come from, there they return again. All the things, uh, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never, uh, the eye, it's so boring I can't even read it, sorry. The eye never has enough seeing, nor the ear uh, has its full hearing. When has, uh, what has been will, be be, uh, will come again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which Someone could say, look, I've discovered this new advance in medicine, in science, in art, in music, in poetry. It was already there long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generation. Even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Womp, womp, right? Everything in life is meaningless. It all goes back in the box. It doesn't matter what you do. That seems like that's what Solomon is saying, but it's not. And I'll explain more later. When you walked in, you should have received a dart. This is going to be fun, I hope, at least for me. And uh, attached to it is uh, like a yard sale price tag. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to write down something that you went after in your life that you thought was going to give you purpose and meaning, but it turns out it, it kind of bit you. It, it left you helpless or hopeless. Maybe it ended in divorce or a bad breakup. Maybe it was a business deal that went wrong. Whatever that thing is, I'm, I feel like a youth pastor. I see you not doing it, church. Uh, so go ahead and grab a pen and write that thing down, okay? Now, as you're doing that, I want to describe, in he, uh, not in Hebrew, in English, what the Hebrew word habal actually is. Can you say habal? Habal is the Hebrew word for uh, worthlessness or being something being uh, not carrying much weight or value. Now, if you can't think through something to write down, maybe you can write down a word that I'm about to share with you. Uh, in the Greek and Hebrew language, the Bible writer, it's like a diamond where you have to keep turning the diamond to see the different aspects of what a word means, okay? So meaninglessness doesn't just mean that, all right? It also means to act foolishly, we're preaching now, aren't we? <laughs> I've been there to become empty, to become vain or arrogant, to have arrogant hope, right? It's me, myself, and I. I'm the, I'm the captain of my own soul. I'm going to create my own reality for my own future. We experience delusion, right? Uh, we experience uh, fleeting, probably relationships and feelings. Uh, we become fraudulent, and we also feel useless, uh, so if there's a word that I just used to describe a ball, go ahead and write that down. And uh, go ahead and get out your dart. Put your left hand, well, I'm right-handed, your left hand, index finger, thumb in the back of this. And then take your right hand with the index finger. And you can stretch out the band like this. Go ahead and do it. I'm watching you, and I'm judging you. Um, so don't hit your uh, neighbor in the back of the head. Forgot to say that during first service. So if you're watching online, use whatever you can find in your house. So when I say three, aim for the targets on my left or my right. Please don't hit the speaker, all right? Uh, this is my moneymaker. Don't ruin it, all right? All right, well, on the count of three, I'm going to go one, two, three. On three, release the darts, okay? So pull it back. You ready? One, two, three. Oh. Now, now I know why they were 10 cents a piece. Yeah. All right, you guys can bring the house lights down. Uh, illustration is over. The, the point of that fun, silly, and maybe stupid, but meaningful 
illustration is that we aim for things that we think will give us purpose, meaning, and value, but the target that we thought was meaningful and purpose actually was habal. It made us feel empty. It made us feel useless. It made us feel foolish, like the world tricked us into thinking that whatever it is that we did would actually give us purpose, meaning, and value, so we aimed our whole life at hitting that target. And you in this moment, whether you're here or watching online, understand why a king would say at the end of his life, there's a lot of stuff under the sun that is really useless in the sense of it's not really useless, it's not really helpful to put all of my eggs in that one basket. So l- let me talk about this wonderful homework chapter. And I want to talk about four life cycles uh, where we grieve our own mortality, okay? Don't worry, if this, if this sermon is a, is a womp womp, come back next week. We'll talk about pain and suffering uh, and why God allows it if he's good. Seriously, that's what we're talking about. But, but there, is a, there is a life cycle of how somebody like King Solomon, who had everything that we would think you could have, and at the end of his life would write a letter saying it's all meaningless. We start grieving our own mortality and purposelessness in our younger years. What? That's ridiculous. Our younger years, we're in our 20s, we're having fun, we're at the club, we're drinking whatever we want, smoking whatever we want, sleeping with whoever we want. I can follow Jesus like when I'm older. Well, when is that? When you retire? When the doctor says you have stage four cancer and three months to live? When when is that? In my 15 years of paid uh, ministry, I have often heard from younger people, wow, there's a moment where I felt old, uh, let's just say 30 or less, and say, look, I like Jesus, I like coming to church, but like, I'll take it seriously later in my life. As if to think that like, Jesus is a lame party person, as if to think like following Jesus is boring and utterly meaningless. Here's what I've never heard in my 15 years of ministry. Man, I'm really glad I blew up my Instagram account with photos of me at the club with all my friends. I mean, I was shredded, good-looking, and I spent my 20s and my 30s getting as ripped as I can, being as hot as I can, making as much money as I can, sleeping around with whoever I wanted to. I'm so glad I did that. Now that I'm in Act 4 of my life with 15 years left, let's just say, now I'm ready to follow. I've never heard anybody, like I've never had that conversation. There, there could be somebody, I just never met them. Here's what I do here. Um, man, my Instagram feed was incredible. Like I was out every weekend with my friends, drinking, doing whatever kind of drug I wanted to, being in the moment, just taking in life. Um, and now that I'm in my 40s and 50s, and now that my kids are about to graduate high school, uh, I, I wish I would have followed Jesus in my 20s. You see, the reason, why, um, the reason why grief for the totality of our life happens in our 20s and we don't understand it is because we're too busy taking in what we want to see right now in the moment. And so sorrow and mourning in our 20s looks like a bunch of young, good-looking people making a lot of money on our Instagram account, smiling 
and having a good time. But what they don't know is that in their later years, they're going to regret it. They're going to regret it. King Solomon did. He actually wrote a book called Song of Solomon, and it's largely about his wedding night with his wife and pursuing uh, his love and she pursuing him. And he says in, in Song of Solomon 2.8, Listen, my beloved, look, here comes here he comes leaping across the mountains. Like, you ever dated a guy who leapt, who kept leaping? That would be weird. It would be the last first date. Bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stang. Meaning he was hot. There, there he stands behind a wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me. We're not looking to think about death and our mortality, and the purpose of life when we're just trying to be loved by someone else in our 20s, right? It's your experience. I know you're quiet. You're taking it in. It's mine, too. But in our 20s, the grieving process happens when we're partying and having fun. We just don't know it yet. And then we move into the resentful years, right? Late 30s, early 40s. The resentful years of mourning a purposeless life looks like this. Uh, I, my body was shredded. I could go out with whoever I wanted. Weekends were a blast. Now that I'm married and have kids and I have a career and I'm getting the dad bod, things aren't working out for me. And so what we do in the resentful years is we blame a meaningless life on other things around us. My boss is a jerk. Why does he pass me up uh, on raises? My kids are annoying. <laughs> why can't they behave like my neighbor's kids? Or why can't we have kids? And in two months from now, you're going to find out that you're actually infertile and you can't have kids. And so we, we shift the resentment, right, from having fun to being, uh, uh, we blame things around us happening to us. And it's in this season of life where Solomon would have said something like this in Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, one will sleep at night without danger. What is he talking about? Jesus said in the Gospels to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. Your diet, your exercise, your mental health, and your sleep all play a role in your relationship with Jesus. And I'll just take it a step further while we're here, your trust in him. See, if you are anxious, depressed, worried, frustrated, angry, about the things in your life that are currently not working out, it does affect your sleep, right? Sure it does. Why? Because you're trusting in yourself to make it happen. Your fear is not in the Lord. You may say that because it's church and, you know, the pastor asks you, is your fear in the Lord? No, no, no. Your fear is not in the Lord to handle your business and to be by your side. You only fear yourself, whether or not you're going to make it on your own terms. Everybody str struggles with this, whether you go to church or not, whether you say you're Christian or not. And what Solomon is telling us here is those that fear the Lord, that have a healthy perspective of life, they're actually able to sleep at night. Now, I do want to say something real quick. I'm not saying that something's wrong with you spiritually if you can't fall asleep. I mean, I've been here long enough. Hopefully, you know that I wouldn't say something as foolish as that. But there is something, too, why you can't sleep at night. There is something to the reason why you have anxiety in your shoulders or your breathing is difficult. Uh, it's not because your boss is a whatever you tell your kids about your boss or your marriage is whatever you tell your buddies at work. 
Uh, it's because you don't fear the Lord. And it's because you're mourning something that you probably don't realize through resenting the things that aren't going your way. I've been there. We've all been there. But I'm just going to say that it exists, right? And we need to get it out in the open air. Thirdly, it, uh, we shift from resenting things around us to the driven years, right? We're going to make it happen. We're going to make it happen, men, aren't we? Uh, all you type A people, dominant people, we're just going to make it happen. I can't trust God. Uh, I can't trust my spouse, my kids, my coworkers. Uh, for me to get meaning and purpose in life, man, I'm going to drive it like a rental, foot on the gas. I'm just going to make it happen. One psychologist calls this the hedonistic treadmill. They say we work hard to maintain our position and eventually become too weary to keep on going. So the enjoyment that attainment initially brings, well, it wears off, which makes sense, right? Uh, so, that the, um, so that we need more and more of the same kind of attainment just as to maintain the same pleasure. It's exhausting even reading it. Eventually, as on a physical treadmill, we will find ourselves too exhausted to continue, which leads us into the fourth grieving process of our own mortality and where Solomon, I think, is writing from, the despairing years. We shift from young, dumb, and in love, having fun on Instagram, to blaming other things that we can't control, but it's easy to throw blame on other things to not, instead of looking at, at ourselves. And then we move into the despairing years, after we tried to grind it out to make it happen on our own, and now we shift from blaming other things to blaming ourselves. We're the joke, I guess. It, 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 we're worthless. It wasn't my boss this whole time. It wasn't my marriage. It wasn't my kids. It wasn't my neighbors. It wasn't my church. It, it's, it's me. I'm pathetic. I can't make anything happen in my life to go the way that I want it to. And we begin to despair ourselves. Uh, one author once said, the day comes when you're lying in the bathtub or the bath and you notice that you're 39 and by the way you're living bears scarcely any resemblance to what you thought you always wanted, and yet you realize you got there from a long series of your own choices, and so we hate ourselves. And now you know why Solomon writes Ecclesiastes 1-2. Meaningless, meaningless. Chabal, chabal, says the teacher. Utter chabal. Everything is chabal. It's meaningless. It's empty. It's vain. It's, it's false arrogance. It's all meaningless. So let's ask the question then. How do we find purpose and meaning in life if it's all meaninglessness? Well, here is, I think, the answer. I think there's two, there could be more, but I think there's two ways to think about meaning and purpose. Meaning can either be created or meaning can be discovered, okay? Now, can an atheist or an agnostic or somebody of a different religion or no religion have a meaningful life? Yep, Jesus said they could. In Matthew 5.45, he, talking about, Jesus talking about the Father, causes his son to rise on, ev on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? So when you're complaining that your non-Christian coworker got the promotion and you didn't, Jesus says, yeah, it's, it's fair game in life. Like anybody can have meaning in life. The question is, are you going to create your own meaning, or you, are you going to discover a meaning that has always existed before you came on the scene, right, while you're here, and it'll still be true long after you're gone? And so I want to tease out what created meaning 
and discovered meaning looks like, all right? So hang with me. This is important, all right? Created meaning is defined by one person. I get to decide what is true and right for me. Uh, In our culture today, uh, celebrities will say, this is my truth. I think maybe a better way to say that would be, this is my experience of life. But my truth is still true nonetheless. You are creating meaning as you see life. If you think about it, like that's what a musician does. He or she looks at their world and creates meaning uh, through their songs. And if you like them, you buy them. And if you really like them, you go see them live, right? It's them assessing their world as they see it and creating meaning on their own terms. And so if things like, you know, war or poverty or abusive relationships are cool with them, that's fine because they're creating meaning for themselves. And you can already see, like, this is philosophy 101 class, right? But every, man, I'm going to say something that might get me fired. But what makes me so frustrated, I'll say that word, is that we've got freshmen going to these philosophy classes and some, you know, community college or Harvard guy or guy with a doctorate says, God isn't real. You look like an idiot if you're a Christian. They go, well, I guess I don't want to be an idiot. So, no, 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 no. It doesn't, just because somebody at an Ivy League school has a degree in a field doesn't mean they're right. It just means they're telling you what they've observed. And so meaning is either created or it's discovered. And if it's created, you get to decide what is meaningful to you. And if I don't like it, that's my, that's my problem because it's your meaning. Secondly, created meaning doesn't have to be rational, right? If, if, if you want to, if you want to, um, I don't know, if you want to go slaughter somebody, go ahead. If you want to be a serial killer, go ahead. It's your truth. I mean, you're seeing the world as you see it, right? If, um, you know, you think that uh, cats are evil, well, you'd actually be right there. Um, that's fine. It's, it's, it's your truth. I, I can't, I, when someone says this is my truth, and if meaning is not to be discovered because there is no God, you're, you're right. That is your truth. That is the way you see the world. And nobody can argue with that, which is another, I'll say this for a second, we'll get back on the train here. We don't know how to disagree with each other in our culture and still be friends. That's ridiculous. Like, I have friends that, that, I, that I, I couldn't be further from in religion and philosophy, but, like, I love being in their presence. But if meaning is only created, you get to decide what it is, and it doesn't have to be rational. You can literally say whatever you want. Thirdly, it doesn't, uh, created meaning does not think about inherent meaning, just assigned meaning. Hold on, wake up, let me tell you what I mean. If there is no God, or you're just kind of like, I'll eh, think about it later, the primary focus of your life is not, uh, it's, it's not in uh, inherent meaning, like what is the purpose of meaning for everybody? Is there, that an, it's an annoying question, but it's still there. Is there life after death? Uh, if you only believe in created meaning, you're not worried about that stuff. You're only thinking about assigned meaning. How can I make my life as meaningful as popular? possible as I see it just quite frankly just so I can survive like adulting is hard it's hard to find good friendships it's hard to pay the bills on time it's hard to know that you're loved by another human being that isn't your spouse and that you can be complete it's really hard and so we just focus on uh, assigning meaning to what we can see versus thinking about inherent meaning that maybe there's something true 
that I may or may not agree with. And is that okay? Professor Jerry Kuhn of the University of Chicago said this, cosmology doesn't give one iota of evidence for a purpose or for God. That's a big statement. Secularists see a universe with apparent purpose and realize that we forge out our own purpose and ethics. But, also, but although the universe is purposeless, our lives are not. We make our own purpose and they are real. That's his truth. You have to decide if he's telling the truth or not. Because if he's telling the truth for you, then that is not created meaning, that's discovered meaning, because now it's meaningful for everybody in the room. I feel like I should buy everyone lunch after this. This is, this is, this is a heady series. I'm not apologizing, I'm just telling you it is, but we need to be able to think well. So let's talk about discovered meaning. Sure, why not? Discovered meaning is different than created meaning. Discovered meaning is for everyone. Love, truth, beauty, forgiveness, grace, redemption. That is either for everybody or it's for no one. Created, discovered meaning are things about our life that are true before you got here, while you're here, and long gone after you after you're leave this earth. Secondly, discovered meaning is actually more rational, oddly enough, than created meaning because discovered meaning, it is true for the majority, if not all, of humanity. Like, you should not kill your brother because they didn't make their bed. Like, you probably shouldn't do that. There, there are basic level human interactions that we can all agree on, uh, whether we're a Jesus follower or not. But that has to come from somewhere, because if it doesn't come from somewhere, me, you know, harming my, I'm the oldest of three boys, me, you know, hitting my brothers for annoying me, that's okay. Because if that's not true for everybody, if violence against another human uh, is, is not accepted among everybody, then that becomes um, a, uh, a, a created meaning. Like if you upset me, I'm going to knock your teeth out. I should be allowed to do that because that's my truth. Ah, but created meaning says, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's truth for everybody that applies to every man, woman, and child. Thirdly, and I thought this was interesting, uh, create or discovered meaning, I'm sorry, is actually more durable, more durable than created meaning. If you're in the camp of God doesn't exist, or I'm not sure, or I don't even care, Ben, because I've been so burnt by the church, right? And all of those or none of those could be true. If you are a person that says God um, may or may not exist, then you have to create meaning for yourself. The tension will come when you suffer, right? When you get divorced, when somebody finds out your, um, your addiction, uh, when your friend uh, you know, robs you of the money because you guys went into business together, you have to, on your own, create meaning out of that if there isn't a God. But hey, here's the plus side. Whatever you come up with, well, it's true because you're defining reality as you see it. But if there is a God and meaning can be not created but discovered, it gives us more durability and character through our suffering years. Uh, Jewish doctor Viktor Frankl was uh, one of the survivors of the death camps of World War II. He was curious why some Jewish men and women survived and others didn't. And his conclusion was this, it came down to a person's meaning in life. Does my suffering, which we'll talk about next week, actually have meaning and purpose? Or do I have to figure out this meaning and purpose on my own? 
the phrase that I've been holding off in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, which I want to close uh, the sermon with this, is the gospel and life under the sun. Uh, Solomon says everything is habal under the sun. Now that phrase is interesting because what the writer is saying is that if you're only looking for purpose and meaning through what you can see, yeah, you're going to be disappointed really quick. Uh, in the first century and even before, like in the Old Testament days, uh, false gods were often placed, the altars were placed on the highest mountains of whatever region they lived in. And so it's no coincidence that David, when he writes the Psalms, would say, I lift my eyes up to the heavens, right? I, I see the false god, but I lift my eyes up even higher. That's where my, we sing this, right? That's where my help comes from. Not, not from the, the false god of, of sex, of money, of looking shredded and having awesome hot Instagram posts, whatever you think quality of life is, is you want to define that. No, my, my hope doesn't come from, from that help, target called Habal. It come, my hope comes from the Lord. He, he's, just a, he's just a little higher up than what I'm experiencing in everyday life. In fact, on the cross, in Matthew 27, 46, Matthew records this statement from Jesus. About three, hour, about, about three <laughs> in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You ever thought about Jesus having questions? See, on the cross, in between the cross and the resurrection, Jesus was enveloped by death. Jesus was enveloped by utter meaninglessness of emptiness and void. See, Jesus isn't a God that sets the world in motion and says, good luck finding it out. No, no. Jesus is not empathetic or sympathetic. He's empathetic to your struggle in this life to search for meaning. In other words, let me say it this way. Jesus experienced the meaningless life without God when he was cut off from the Father on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was sentenced to life without God so that we may have life with God. Jesus said it another way in Matthew 16, 25, whoever wants to save their life, and who doesn't want to cover themselves, right? That's why we buy insurance policies. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What? Here's what he's saying. Whoever wants to define their life by their own created meaning, they're going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What does the for me part mean? Well, in our sermon today, what Jesus is suggesting is there actually is discovered meaning, and I created it for you. There's advances in medicine, and science, and art, and music, relationships, psychology, sociology. It's all there waiting for you to dig up like kids at a playground, but it all points back to me. Maybe a simpler way to say it would be this. It's really hard to follow Jesus if you keep telling Jesus how you see the world on your own terms, right? It's just true for me. And Jesus says, I, I get it. I, I, I get the struggle to be the main character of your own story, but, 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 but let me tell you something. If you're willing to lay down the need to define life on your terms through your own created meaning and discover what I call eternal life, then you will find a meaningful and purposeful life 
way beyond what you can see, hear, and experience every single day. Does life have meaning and purpose? Oh yeah. It just depends on, do you want to create it for yourself, or do you want to discover it through life with Jesus? In a moment, we're going to take communion together. And if you're new to the church, or if you've never been or never taken communion, uh, it's what we do every week. It's, it's an opportunity to remember that Jesus died for our sins. Uh, and that can be, uh, as beautiful as that statement is, it can get, can get old after a while if you go to church consistently over a period of time. And so what I'd like to do is reframe it. I would, I would like to, for you to consider, maybe spend some time in prayer with Jesus, that maybe the bread and the juice is a, um, is a picture of a God who was willing to die on a cross and embrace total darkness, separation from the Father, and utter chabal, meaninglessness, uselessness, arrogance, so that you might discover life in Jesus. So let me pray, and we'll take communion together. Jesus, we thank you so much for um, the truth of your word, and truth that's not uh, created, it was discovered. Um, you kind of get to say whatever you want if you actually are God, uh, because you did die for our sins, and you rose again three days later. Uh, but to be honest, Jesus, um, life is a grind, and some of us here are hurting and, and broken, and we, we sin in our pain, and we do things we wouldn't normally do in our pain. Um, but we're trying to figure out what in the world's going on in our life. And I thank you that the cross is a reminder that you don't love us any, any, any less when we're struggling. You don't love us any less when we have doubts or questions. Actually, those things if meaning is to be discovered as you created it, those things actually pull us closer to you because you know exactly what it feels like to feel worthless, to feel abandoned, to feel chaval, and to feel meaninglessness because you were separated from the Father, which is the epitome of utter meaninglessness. And you did that so that we wouldn't find religion <laughs> or to try to stay in line through behavior modification. You did it so that we could experience God by living a life of following you. And that's why we're here to take communion today. May we be reminded of that this week. That everyone we come across in our circle of influence is looking for meaning and looking for purpose. The struggle is that many of our friends are just trying to create it on the fly. And there's a life that's waiting for them to be discovered. Should we be so bold to tell them about it? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.